Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, the podcast about the visual production of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Kate Barry. I'm Dan Solberg. And today we're going to be talking about the third episode of Season 8, The Long Night, directed by Miguel Sapochnik. This was a crazy episode. <laughs> it was bonkers. Start to finish. What a... Well, I would say it's a, it was a roller coaster, actually, yes, because there were definitely some ups and downs. If you were going to draw the feeling of the episode, it would look like a wave, because they're <laughs> like, okay, we're going to win. Oh, no. Okay, we're okay. Oh, no, all is lost. <laughs> so I, I think Dan and I both have our nerves still totally shot from Sunday night. It was like, I don't know. I don't think I've been that tense watching an episode of television before. Yeah, I yelled and screamed and covered my mouth and I'd get closer to the screen and then I'd sort of recoil in horror um I was I was very I moved a lot during this episode because I couldn't yes I had to hide (laughs) I think we so we had a little bit of uh streaming problems a couple times like early on like it would stutter a little bit and so we'd pause it you know to like let it load or whatever and then, you know, while it's paused, I'd like get up and go to the bathroom or something like that. And I just remember thinking, like saying probably, you know, about 20 minutes or so in, I just like, I hate this episode. <laughs> <laughs> like, so how do this you f- viewing experience is too much. So how do you feel now that you've seen the whole thing? Do you still hate this episode? No, I don't. I, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a, a very solid episode of television. I think it is a strange episode in the context of the larger arc of the story, but not necessarily a bad thing, but definitely like a a left turn yeah. um, on a lot of stuff that is like, well, how do they go from here? I don't know. What do you think? I agree. I think it is definitely the best episode so far in this season, and I'm happy to see that they're getting better and better. They definitely made some choices that... I did not expect, and I'm not exactly sure where we'll go from here, but I enjoyed it even if there were times where I was like, what's happening? I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know, I, I feel like seeing it and I watched it again and removed of that initial tension, mm-hmm. um, it's obviously a much different viewing experience when you're not concerned about every character every step of the way. But I don't know, you you can sort of follow things a lot better also without without that tension and sort of just what are the ebbs and flows of the battle and less just like on pins and needles the whole time. Right, right. Just hands up against your cheeks in horror. <laughs> uh, did you have any kind of like overarching impressions or takeaways from the episode? Anything that sort of really stuck out to you about it thematically or the way it was shot or anything production wise i think this episode is where they really made clear why they bothered to build out a full winterfell they got to do so Mm -hmm. many cool tracking shots and with i mean you you felt how big winterfell was and it was really i thought it was really worth it that they did that because it just grounded it so much and in a in a battle that has zombies and dragons and ice immortals that it actually feels grounded in the real world because that space seemed on a human scale yeah the the different areas felt distinct but like connected so like the gods would felt like a very distinct location here it's Mm -hmm. where very specific characters are 
and there's like a certain tension and sort of a visibility around the god's wood that a character like john is looking to keep throughout the episode and so then we also are like keeping an eye on that section the whole time and it's it's like this this anchor point that revolves around everything everything is so revolved around visibility in this episode as well sort of like the idea of where what can you see and what can't you see yeah that became pretty important I also thought that this was a really good episode for the way that the dragons looked and using the dragons as much as I mean Game of Thrones is about dragons but sometimes it can feel a little silly Uh, but Mm -hmm. this time I felt like they were used really well but especially shots of them up in the air and fighting and colliding and reflected up against you know fog clouds that that really seemed effective yeah they were definitely going in on and executing well on some of those like old fantasy book illustration kind of sort of set pieces that you'd imagine oh here's like my dragon poster on my wall yeah that kind of stuff yeah so I thought it looked really really good lots of interesting disturbing, scary, suspense-building shots. Liked that all a lot. Thought it looked great. Not all of them came from plot points that made sense, but that's okay. Sure. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Well, we I'm willing to forgive a lot. <laughs> well, we had also, I don't know if you saw any of this, an actual, honest-to-goodness uh, production controversy around the darkness of the episode. Did you see any of this? like debate going on i know that my mother keeps sending me emails about how dark it is and she can't see anything so yes i'm aware so there was definitely like people complaining about how dark the episode was and also essentially uh some of the quality of the the resolution and some color banding going on like essentially like all these dark scenes then have these kind of bands of different shades of black and gray rather than it looking nice and like a smooth gradient and things like that. Mm. And from what has been investigated into it, it seems like probably in large part this has to do with people viewing this on LED screens and LED essentially having problems displaying like different shades of black Hmm. and so it kind of just blocks everything together so you really need like a very fancy tv which is probably like the monitors that they're using on the show to like look at footage is like oh this looks fantastic yeah but like on all of our like dumb tvs they can't (laughs) handle it and also there's they also suspected that there might have been a little bit of drop in quality Mm. over the streams like essentially hbo is throttling the quality a bit because they're more interested in everybody seeing the picture than having crashes. So if it's essentially a little bit less going to everyone, then that would maybe help mitigate that. That's kind of speculation on that part. Sure. Um, They're not going to admit to doing that. Yeah, but that stuff with the LED screens is literally because LEDs are backlit in a way that makes it very difficult. So you need a more expensive OLED TV or something like that to, mm-hmm. to mitigate that thing, which I do not have. No. My television was uh, <laughs> a, a display unit that I got for sale at a Best Buy a couple of years ago. So. so did it look weird to you? Did you have a hard time following the action? Yeah, I think I I definitely have that problem on our TV that I don't have that problem on my computer when I watch it later Mm -hmm. uh, to take notes. So it's the screenshots and everything that I take that I post on Twitter don't have that problem. They look nice. So it definitely seems like it is something to do with screens. 
Yeah. But it's just how often do we get the <laughs> people complaining about this? And then the cinematographer for the episode came up and been, was like, no, it's exactly how I wanted it to look. Y'all just need to like <laughs> chill get, and get used to it. <laughs> get better TVs, fools. But, you know, I, I do appreciate in general the effort. And I think we'll talk about the immense production effort that went into this episode that on one hand, they also did a tremendous amount of natural lighting. They actually mm-hmm. shot this episode in the dark outside, and they were really trying to use that space as much as they could. And you mentioned the Winterfell set, so having everything feel grounded in this place that looks and seems real and using as much of that realism as possible without having everything be just totally CGI, which there's plenty of CGI in this episode. Sure. but often not exactly where the where our characters are where we're seeing we're having those character moments so well it was amazing to see in watching the behind the scenes giant cranes holding i can't even imagine how many tons of light rigging up yeah. above the winterfell set to have a sort of a natural looking ish moonlight like a it was really crazy i just i mean like you have to hope that doesn't fall and kill like a hundred people <laughs> yeah it looked immense and it was one of those things where in like the behind the episode thing which i realized last time we were calling like behind the thrones but is actually the game revealed i see well it's all the same or or something maybe 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 something else is behind the thrones it is not after the thrones which was terrible yeah canceled it's okay for good for good reason though dan Um, i i always had a secret dream that we would get a call and that we would get to do after the thrones and then i think we would have excelled at it (laughs) i think we would have excelled at it i also had always thought about maybe we should do a show where we watch after the thrones and just like (laughs) take it down a notch every step of the way oh just put on our pettiest faces yeah yeah well that we didn't have the chance. It didn't last long no. enough. Well, I guess we could dive into what happened in this episode and start talking about it. It's all a battle at Winterfell, you know, mm-hmm. one location, but they use they use every part of the castle. Yeah. And we see a, a few different fronts, the godswood, the crypts, out in front of the castle, within the court. Mm-hmm. yard area up and, on the walls uh, mm-hmm. and in the in various halls and things like that uh, around the around the actual building so uh we get to see a whole bunch of different areas and all very linked together yeah my husband and i was watching it with him he mentioned that it reminded him a little bit of dunkirk that you've got sort mm. of different air different sometimes even different pacing of a battle going on in different places so i think it felt like there was a little bit of that but also this feeling of people being really determined at the end in a, in a dire situation mm-hmm. and the showrunners have said that they sort of had this episode constructed who who wrote this episode the wb wrote this episode mm-hmm. and they will write all the rest of them for the season they said that they saw this as essentially broken into three different genre pieces. This is an episode that was maybe the longest one we had. It was 123 minutes long, I think. No, sorry, not 123 minutes, 83 minutes. I was, I was, I added an extra half hour on mm. there. 
but yeah, it was, I, I think maybe the longest one we've had and will be the longest one technically this season. I think all the remaining ones are like one twenty or uh, 80. Exactly. I keep saying that. I mean, an hour 20, yes. not 120. So they start out essentially with a, a suspense angle. They go into a horror angle and then they end on action note. And I think there's a little bit of blending between all of those from time to time. There's definitely a lot of action in the suspense part eventually. Right. But it does kind of start out more before the actual kind of all the fighting takes place. There is a little bit more suspense going on. And we'll, I think we'll talk about the rest once we kind of get to it. But yeah. But I guess maybe we can just kind of go through the battle and just sort of talk through the, the relevant points when it's, there's anything that kind of struck you about uh, a particular element but we start out right uh, in front of the castle and it's essentially how we described last time on the map whereas the dothraki are out front a bunch of the unmounted knights and bannermen are to the sides and behind them all is a legion of unsullied and they're sort of guarding the in front of a trench that will have a little bridge that they can collapse and uh, essentially light the trench, and, and so the, the fire will keep the zombies out from actually attacking the castle. And then a, a few p- people are also then stationed inside. Right. And we do a tracking shot, uh, at least at the beginning, follow Sam, follow Tyrion, get visual confirmation of basically every character that's important to us. It's dark. Mm-hmm. It's pretty quiet. Everyone looks super nervous. We I noticed that we saw Alice Karstark going with... Theon and Bran to the Godswood originally. Mm -hmm. She walks with them, and then before the fighting starts there, we see her one more time, but then we don't see her again. So I guess it's presumed that she didn't make it, of course, but we don't don't see that actually happen. Um, But it's like, oh, hey, there's, you know, they managed to fit just about everyone in here that you have seen other than Mr. Royce who is nowhere to be found in this episode. I wonder what he was up to. Where was he hiding? He's like in a belfry somewhere, <laughs> like waiting to swoop. We saw Ghost again. Ghost is out front with Jorah leading the Dothraki, which I have heard, and I have not seen it for myself, but it is believed that Ghost is not dead and will show up in the next episode. Sure. I mean... I I believe that because I think if he were dead, we probably would have seen it. But it seemed like, I mean, he's got plot armor, right? He went out to face the, with the first uh, charge against the White Walkers and he'll be fine, I guess. That's just how it goes. I guess they're doing a lot of the other direwolves rotten though. So I wouldn't be, at first when Ghost is in this initial charge against the zombies and we see him run out there and then essentially from a distance, we see everybody's flaming Eric's flicker out because Melisandre lit them on fire originally. Mm-hmm. And then we don't see Ghost return. It was like, well, maybe that was it. I don't know. Like another lame way to write out a CGI character that you don't want to animate anymore. Yeah, I guess they could have decided to do that. I I figure as long as you don't see Ghost die, he could always show up because he sh- shows up so infrequently. Who knows what he mm-hmm. does with his free time? I think we passed over essentially what is uh, really cool about that initial setup. And again, these kind of feelings of uh, the battle ebbing and flowing is Melisandre shows up out of nowhere. 
magically is able to light all of the Dothraki Iraqs on fire, and so they look like Beric Dondarrion swords, and then they all ride out, and so then we have the vantage point of Daenerys and Jon up on a hill with the dragons as these kind of collection of little fiery lights kind of swarm out into the darkness and then are subsumed and slowly bit by bit from a distance if we see from the other foot soldiers perspective uh, we see each light kind of flicker out yeah and that was definitely effective and i know lots of people have complained that this was a bad strategy and i agree but it was very effective cinematography yeah i also thought it was funny considering how much the dothraki hate witches that um, sort of the last thing that happens to them before they all die is that a witch lights their weapons on fire. Yeah, um, I I did think they were like weirdly trusting of it. And I mean, granted, it's a cool trick, you know? Mm-hmm. It's definitely like, ah, just light your swords on fire. That's, I guess I'd be into it. Well, it's especially in that moment. And, and so at the very beginning, people seem really nervous, but with Melisandre's arrival and lighting their racks on fire you feel like they could do this. They could do this, mm-hmm. right? And then they go out and the one by one, the little flames just are extinguished. And then you're like, oh no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's another element of like this suspense, right? So like we don't really see the dead at that point. We just see from a distance this, uh, you know, one light after another being extinguished. And then it's just like, oh, well, what else is going to come out of the darkness? And there's a few people who run back. We see Jorah, who I love the shot they have in slow motion of Jorah giving, I think, Tormund, maybe? Mm-hmm. This look that is like, mm, this, ain't, this ain't good. This is, <laughs> is bad out there. Yeah. Um, I don't know how they get the horse, this like unmanned horse just is running like it's scared for its life. I don't know how you get a horse to like get him to do that, but like it wasn't just, oh, there's a horse running out. It was like that horse is terrified. Yeah. Um, somebody somebody knows how to get the horses to do what you want them to do. <laughs> I think that's a whole profession. So. Uh, yeah, a horse handler. <laughs> but then with everyone's spirits sort of already below zero, you get this tidal wave of undead. And I really like how we're introduced to them coming. There's a shot from below eyesight, like, or eyeline. Then there's a shot from above. And then when they finally crash into the Unsullied, it's sort of where the camera is exactly at their eyeline. And I thought that was just a good way to show that this basically, they're not moving the way bodies move. They crash like 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 a single, I don't know, punch or something. They draw a little bit from the the World War Z stuff yes. on on that wave, the initial wave as they're kind of piling on top of one another. But even you know later when they do start scaling the walls, eventually they they kind of pull back from that a bit. It's they they kind of only do this initial like real swarm here at the start. Yeah, but I definitely did um, see echoes of World War Z in in some of the zombie choices of using each other as bridges or building kind of mountains up up the walls. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Melisandre in this episode because she pops up a lot. She's extremely integral to the way that this battle goes mm-hmm. and the way that kind of everything happens with Arya and everything else. And other than lighting the Eriks on fire, I, the only other person she talks to on her way into the castle is Grey Worm, and she says... All men must die, Vela Margulis. 
and Grey Worm answers how, you know, just in the almost reactionary way of Velodohyrus, mm-hmm. all men must serve. And I, I don't know. Do you think that she, because Grey Worm sort of, they, they have a lot of time in this episode on Grey Worm's expressions in extreme close-up. Did you have a read on like what he was thinking about Melisandre when she was doing that? No, I, I've heard some jokes that he was upset that they that the Unsullied didn't get any fire. I don't think that's <laughs> I don't think that's right. But the feeling that the Dothraki get these flaming swords and that she just passes the Unsullied by, maybe as someone from the east, he has a better idea of. She, he may recognize who and what she is from her robes or, or realize mm. that she may have some sort of powers that will help them during this. A lot of his, actually, when we get a little bit later in the episode, there's a lot about his looks that I don't know that I totally understood. I think what you see on his face a lot is just fear. And mm-hmm. I think that's supposed to be really frightening and destabling for the audience because Grey Worm has traditionally not shown a lot of fear. Yeah, I think fear and a little bit of just, I don't know, unsure, like insecurity a bit that Mm -hmm. like, I'm doing this, I'm a good soldier, but do I want to do this? Is this the right thing to do? I feel like there's a lot of sort of self-questioning in some of those looks. And he ultimately goes through with everything as kind of the, the good soldier, but he feels like there are instances where he's like, I don't know, this isn't, this isn't right. Right. And I know that part of that fear, he has said, I, I can't remember which season it was in now, that because he now loves Masande, that he knows fear because he has something to lose, right? So I know, I think mm-hmm. that's part of it, is that he's afraid that he won't be able to protect the people that he loves, especially yeah. Masande. But there's also something else in that look, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there could be something, like you said, about both being from the East, maybe this understanding both being former slaves that there's some element of i don't know recognition maybe because they're both they're both sort of highly trained people who come from another continent to fight somebody else's war yeah i could see that for sure definitely definitely i think a sense of recognition there so we finished with the big crash of the first whites into the unsullied danny is so horrified by what happened to the dothraki that i guess she ignores the plan i don't know it felt like in after the episode the wb were basically blaming danny for not sticking to the plan but she gets on drogon and then hits everything with some dragon fire which then you have this feeling again of like hope like oh they can make it right so it's again this up and down and up and down with your emotions Mm -hmm. yeah they really just really start roasting the undead and these huge lines that there's a great shot later in the episode pretty far in where you just have these lines of fire yeah. that are like crisscrossed from where the dragons have have lit up the ground every kind of positive ebb in the scope of this episode is then kind of returned in the opposite direction pretty soon thereafter so john essentially joins the fight with Daenerys both on their dragons then he's flying around and he sees essentially this line of White Walker sentinels way in the back, not really in the fray, not fighting at all. We don't see any White Walkers fight in no. this episode, which I thought was strange. Right, especially um, since there were so many in that last shot of the second episode. And it really seemed like they were going to play a big part and maybe, you know, our, our very recognizable characters would 
each get to fend them off with their Valyrian steel swords because that's why they have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently they didn't need them. They just needed some of Gendry's dragonglass daggers would have just done fine. Anyway, John heads toward the, the White Walkers and essentially this winter blizzard uh, erupts behind them and, and moves in. So like we know from seeing the White Walkers in the past that the White Walkers bring cold, they bring night, and they can presumably bring storm as well. So they are able to control the weather in a certain sense or at least bring in this very disruptive element that, that basically prevents John from being able to see them anymore and also then comes in and subsumes the, the battlefield where all of our other characters are are fighting soon thereafter. Yeah, and I actually liked that because I liked that they were using all of their powers. So, you know, if everyone who's defending Winterfell is using everything at their disposal, so is the side of cold and darkness. Mm-hmm. I also liked that with Danny and John chasing after the Night King on the dragon, it showed how difficult it is to ride a dragon. It really didn't seem fun. They have snow in their face. They're having a hard time holding on. The dragons collide. I really like right. that... Danny often rides the dragon like it's no problem at all. And, you know, her mm-hmm. hair looks great and she's very badass and that's awesome. But it was also cool and I think as realistic as riding a dragon can be to show that this is hard and they're having a hard time using the dragons as much as they'd like to because of how difficult it is to ride them. Also in this episode, they have they have a certain amount of control over the dragons as well that they're riding them more like you would try to ride a horse if a horse was the size of a dragon and <laughs> flying like they're where the last time we saw John riding Rhaegal, it was like, he's just holding on, right? Mm-hmm. He's not driving or steering anything. It's just the dragon's going to do what it's going to do. And a lot of times where Danny had been on Drogon in the past, it was like that as well. She certainly gained more confidence over time, but this was really one of the first instances except for maybe a little bit of the beyond the wall scene where Danny flew in with Drogon that we've really seen her like, or both of them, I guess, like really using them like you would like a war horse. And like, here's mm-hmm. this animal that is also essentially this tool of battle. And we're going to like make them do these big turns and like steer them around. And it's a little bit less of like, oh, this is like my these are my children and a little bit more of like, no, like we're, we're in this together and we're the humans are the ones really steering the ship here. Yeah. I think, I think that's mostly true except towards the end when Drogon is sort of overwhelmed and leaves right. Danny. Yes. That's, that's where it kind of breaks a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really liked a lot of the dragon stuff and I, I liked it better in second viewing when I was better able to sort of understand the action sometimes because I think I was just really tense the first time around and every time there'd be like a dragon sort of in the background, it'd be like, is that Viserion? Is that the Night King? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it's not. Like until like, you know, when Viserion shows up Yes. and it's, it's, they're not trying to like trick you and say like oh that's maybe his shadow over there it's like no that's just darkness that's the other dragon yeah <laughs> like, there's no there's not really any misdirects with which dragon is which mm-hmm. it gets a little tricky to follow but if you if you look closely you can see like even when Viserion and Rhaegal are sort of scuffling together and like 
they take they trade kind of blows scraping each other mm-hmm. you can see like who's doing what to when uh, but it's you do kind of have to pay attention to it because they're not that different of colors and again it's quite dark that's true and i have heard conflicting things about even how many dragons are left alive i think mm. it is possible that Rhaegal also died because i don't know that we see him after a certain point I think I think he's in the trailer for the next episode. Oh, well then he's alive. <laughs> I think. I think it is uh, a weird plot conceit of this episode when they ultimately have Rhaegal essentially just crash land mm-hmm. after seemingly not getting that hurt. Like he got a little scraped up, but like Yeah, not but, like But he was able he to land Viserion's face off. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So I, I thought he was still living, but I, I read some things and talked to some people who felt like, no, he didn't make it. Well, I think if he wouldn't have made it, they they were pretty unceremonious about it. So I I hope that he did. I mean, obviously, I hope that he did. Me too. So speaking of things that were a little hard to figure out was happening, I wanted to get your read on, again, Grey Worm's face and Mm -hmm. his... What was going on in his head when he he runs behind the phalanx of, Mm -hmm. of the Unsullied? He breaks the bridge. Is he leaving them to die is he sacrificing them that's what i think is happening was that always the plan i think that it was i think in the the case of a in the case of a retreat maybe they it's a contingency plan i would i would expect maybe they weren't sure that things were going to go this badly but if they Mm -hmm. were going to go this badly here's what they were going to do next and i mean yeah I, i think in general, with this being like a good episode of TV and less like always like the best battle strategy, because if you're just trying to look for like a, a good fight, just just light that trench from the get go <laughs> and then station yourselves behind the trench. Seriously. So, you know, they they, they don't go that route. But yeah, I, I took that to be like him having serious doubts that this is the right thing to do because or if not serious doubts just like it's very hard like it's like these are your brothers essentially who who you've been every, through all these kind of horrible times with and they're out there essentially guarding the retreat and the only way to sort of block the way and make sure that everybody else gets across i guess is to have them all stay over there i don't know but it seemed like there were also more unsullied somewhere because they bring melisandre out and it's like okay well maybe that wasn't all of them it sure is a lot of them though. yeah i and i'm wondering now if daenerys will have a reckoning about she brought the dothraki she brought the unsullied and then she hasn't kept them safe in westeros and so i'm one mm-hmm. especially since Masande and gray worm are already expressing like we don't really like this place that much which is fair mm-hmm. The people in Winterfell have been really awful to them that they may confront Daenerys and say, like, you have not protected us. You have not. You're our queen that we chose and you brought us to this other continent and you haven't kept us safe. And turns out all we needed to beat this person was an assassin. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So did we really all need to be out there fighting and being sacrificed as such? I don't know. I mean, I think the overarching thing for this episode for me is seems like the theme was the ends justify the means <laughs> yeah. and 
it's it goes back to the things that this episode hinging so much on Melisandre and Bran and essentially them probably both having had visions of how this is going to go and being like, well, this is where we're going to end up. So, and then Bran basically telling everybody who's wronged him over the years, like, it's okay. This brought you to this point and this is where you needed to be. And you can just sort of like stack everything up for all these characters to be like, well, yeah, you could say like, yeah, spoilers toward the end. <laughs> Arya, you know, kills the Night King. But you could you could kind of bill everything up to being like, well, if one of those puzzle pieces was off, maybe things would have gone differently and it wouldn't have all been able to add up to this. You know, mm-hmm. if something else wouldn't have been in place, then it's not like Arya was, would have always had those capabilities if Melisandre wasn't there, if the Hound wasn't there, if Beric wasn't there, if all these kind of elements weren't going on and the Night King was not able to essentially have been goaded into revealing himself in this way, you know, with John and Danny being there, who's to say? And the show, and I'm very curious to see how they essentially justify it next episode, how the characters justify it next episode, essentially the mass death that was there, that, yeah, it's like, well, this all ended up the way we wanted it, but I could see a gray worm being like, no, <laughs> uh, this was, uh, was a bad really plan. unnecessary bad plan. and like, hey, Danny, you're great. But like, I think I don't want to continue fighting down south against Cersei. This is silly at this point. Yeah, it will be interesting to see. And I think we see at least a hint of it in the trailer that Daenerys is starting to rally people to go down there. But how uh-huh. will she do that? Aren't people tired of fighting at this point? I know. I I don't get it. I, I'm i wondering if there's going to be some other sort of Cersei, like having some sort of threat, right? I could imagine them essentially being out of food out there now and Winterfell being in such shambles that it's not actually a shelter anymore and that they have to go somewhere, but go to war? I don't, yeah, I don't... I don't know. I I wonder if something will come up to them that then they have to fight their way down. Otherwise, they'll they'll get killed up there or something. And I I realize it's possible that Daenerys might be able to convince some of the other southern houses or more southern houses to join her cause, especially if she says, you know, look how I defended you against the threat from the north. But I'm not sure that a lot of other people even accepted that that was a real threat yet. Yeah. So who knows? Who knows how that will go? And it seems like it's just kind of minor houses left anyway down there. It's the Reach is the Tarleys, and the Tarleys got taken out, and mm-hmm. in the uh, Marjorie, what's Tyrells, the, the Tyrells, the Tyrells, and the Martells. Um, Dor- Dorne's certainly not on their side. The Stormlands, whoever is even still there, not really on their side. The Riverlands, the twins are, you know, the Freys are gone. We don't, uh, is Edmure supposed to be in charge again? Edmure is supposed to be in this season at some point. So maybe he's, maybe he's taken back the Riverlands. The Eerie is already with them. And the Iron Islands are split right now. Edmure is supposed to be captive at Castaway Rock. Was he freed when? Oh, that's a good point. Because they did take it over, didn't they? Yeah. We didn't see him, but maybe they'll say as much or something. Yeah, that he'll be, um, he'll say, 
well, I'll fight for the Dragon Queen because when you guys f- took Casterly Rock, you let me go. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I know we're we're getting into like what we want to what we think will happen next episode, but I I do want to say on that front, like I think that we might see, and I hope that we might see Mira read again mm. because I think they are going to have to trudge their way. Not everybody can fly down on the dragon. Yeah, they're going to have to go through the neck. They might have to trudge their way through the neck. And I wonder if we're going to like set up shop at the twins or something like that, which are maybe abandoned now or something, or, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe Edmure's down there or something like that. That would be sort Um, of fun for, for something that has, the thing that sort of destroyed the Stark family for them all to hang out there now while they're headed south. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see it. What a, Um, what a, I think it'd be cool anyway. What a strange thing, though, that they fought for the North and they're talking about independence in the North and that regardless of what happened, they may have to go South because the North is just too hard to live in and Winterfell is pretty destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't think they're going to... Well, I'm curious. They Sometimes they really want to play into sort of the geography of everything, like when Jon and Sansa were doing their tour of the North to try and kind of rally everybody. But I wonder if they'll... You know, otherwise you could say like, well, why don't y'all just go to White Harbor and like hole up for a while and, you know, maybe take a boat over to Bravos and <laughs> yeah. and hang out there for a bit. But I, I've got a feeling that's, that's not where we're headed. I also wouldn't be surprised now if we see Yara again to help out with some naval side of things. I think that's probably true. At, when she mentioned that she was going to take the Iron Islands back in Daenerys' name, I sort of thought, oh, we'll never see her again. But now mm-hmm. that the season is taking more shape, I think we probably will. Yeah, I was exact. Oh, sorry. Hey, oh, well, I'm going to roll with this pun, but yeah, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should have been confident about that pun. That's great. <laughs> so I think where we left off, the unsullied are being sacrificed. Uh, Melisandre's walking very slowly out to light the trench so slow it's silly there's a couple elements of this episode that are just straight up silly and the red god really has a sense of tension because he is not gonna he's really gonna test her faith before Uh he lets her light that trench i do like the uh sort of the tenor that the chanting takes on like it gets more and more exasperated and it just has i don't know it when she first starts, it's just like, oh, you're just saying some words and it's just like some sounds. But then like as it goes, it becomes more and more of this kind of like uh, emphatic chant that is increasingly desperate. And um, I don't know, I thought it had a, a nice kind of build to that dramatic tension. And they have a number of shots of close-ups of Melisandre's face. Sometimes it's like half her face and she's sort of looking behind her and always checking around as the zombies get closer and closer. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a nice tension-building scene. Maybe it could have been less tense if she could have gotten out there about 15 seconds faster. <laughs> yeah. She's wearing a lot of robes. She must be hard to walk. I Sure, yeah. Stand up for her. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and then we see what's going down in the crypts, going on down in the crypts, which are s- the safest place in Winterfell. Yeah, the safest place in Winterfell. What... It- I'm curious what you thought about the crypts. I'll just start by saying I I was a little disappointed in the crypts angle of this episode. 
I totally agree. One, I know I'm not the first person to point this out, but in the last season, John was like, every man, woman, and child will be trained with a spear and they will fight the dead. And then most of the women and children are down in the crypt because they're particularly vulnerable then to the sort of surprise, not surprise, that the dead will rise out of the crypt. And they're not ready for it. No. You know? When it finally happens and the mummified Stark descendants or sorry uh antecedents antecedents is that okay yes or ancestors (laughs) ancestors that's the that's the word i was trying to think of anyway when they start coming out they're pretty slow and they're just kind of scrawling their way out and it's like where's that little girl (laughs) that davos was giving the pep talk to just run over and stab that thing in the face you've got a dagger you can do it yeah Yeah, so I agree. And I think part of it was a a sort of confusion from the initial trailers that I thought, I think most people thought that Arya was in the crypts. And so Mm -hmm. the idea that something going on in the crypts was going to be so scary that it would freak out Arya Mm -hmm. sort of ratcheted up the expectations of what was going on down there. Yeah, And that was wrong, and that's okay. The conversation between Tyrion and Sansa was a good one, I think. Although I'm not sure if all the points were clear to me as why they were needing to be made. So Tyrion saying, if we were out there, we might see something that they don't. We could help. I think that's probably true. I don't know why Sansa is so sure that it's not. And then also looking truth in the face as being the most important thing to do right now. I'm not sure if I understood in what context she was speaking or what kind of truth she was talking about. Yeah, and I know they... They use that line in what was the trailer for this episode, essentially out of context. Mm-hmm. In context, it's, yeah, it's it feels, I don't know. I, 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 I like the conversation between Tyrion and Sansa when they're talking about their, their marriage and stuff like that. Very I sweet. That, that goes really well. But I was really hoping for a little bit more of the same sort of situation that in the Battle for Blackwater where Cersei is essentially down in the Red Keep lower levels or whatever and essentially is there to keep up morale for the ladies of the court. Yeah. And, you know, her reaction to that is to get sloshed and like how she hates doing it. And I thought that Sansa would not necessarily do that same thing, but I don't know, just felt like employ a lesson learned from Cersei in that instance and have a little bit more to do and to say to the people down there. I was um, expecting that as well. And I think we see that she refuses to lie when she she comes down last to the crypts mm-hmm. and everyone's looking to her like, how's it going? And her face looks like it's not going well, but she doesn't say anything. But she's also not saying like, we're doing great, right? She won't she won't lie yeah. to the people there. But I also remembered that scene at the from the Battle of the Blackwater and thought that even in that episode with like little naive Sansa, that she helped support the women and children that were there by having them sing a hymn. She was even more helpful back then than she is now mm-hmm. as a Lady of Winterfell, who's not really offering any words of support to anyone. Right. Or even encouragement or, hey, get your daggers ready. You never know what might happen down here. Just, yeah, I, I felt like... Her as a leader in this episode was, I mean, I don't know. It just, it, it struck a, a, an off note, I felt like. It was just not quite 
I don't know what it, what it was serving. I'm not saying like Sansa has to be the the strong kind of powerful leader in every scene that she's in, and like it's not like oh I'm disappointed in in that or something. It's more just like I don't know what this was really going for. It felt like it was just a little flat. I agree. I agree. Taking two characters who I realize are not great fighters, but having them say like, well, everyone else is up there dying, but we can't do anything. And I, yeah. I think we can keep talking about the crypts. It's a little out of order, but. Once the dead rise and people are just getting picked off by these very slow skeletons, Tyrion and Sansa are hiding behind the same sarcophagus and each Mm -hmm. take out their dragon uh, glass knife. And it looks like either they're like, we're going to join the fight and we're going to go stab something else. Or Mm -hmm. as I think a lot of people thought, it's it's a suicide pact. And then you Mm -hmm. don't see them doing either. And then what was the point of that scene? They just are like running and they run over to where Varys and some other people are and they just are like, oh, hey, you're here. Yep. <laughs> and that's it. And then next thing we know, the, the zombies all get dead because the or zombies get dead. <laughs> the, the the zombies all like uh, drop inanimate again mm-hmm. when the Night King goes down and that's that's it down there. And yeah, so it's weird and felt a little artificially kind of trumped up there again in a way that i like it as a dynamic between Tyrion and sansa yes but the context of the overarching plot of this episode and even maybe more so even perhaps the characters arcs in general uh yeah i didn't quite get it me neither and the one other thing about Tyrion, they're like you couldn't help it all i don't know when Davos is giving the signal up top, which was what Tyrion was supposed to be helping him do originally, Davos gives up awfully fast. And I was just thinking like, well, what if Tyrion was over on the other side where Jon could have seen him from the godswood? Right. And could have, literally could have helped. Right. Maybe double the fire. Maybe Tyrion might have thought, let's light something bigger on fire. <laughs> right? right? Try to get their attention. Yeah. I thought that was... I don't. Un- so I don't understand the general point of everyone here has to help except for Tyrion, Sansa, and Varys who for whatever reasons can't be helpful at all. I I kind of get maybe well I guess I don't know what Varys would do necessarily and I, Sansa maybe they essentially just want to protect her as a figurehead and I guess that's the that's the justification mm-hmm. for Tyrion but I think Tyrion makes the point of like he helped in the Blackwater, and he, he, I don't know. I I think having Tyrion down in the crypts was a tactical mistake on their part, and he actually could have uh, been quite helpful. Me too. And also, we don't see Davos really fight that much, and he seemed like he got out all right. So, like, he could have hung out with Davos, and they probably would have been fine. Sam spent most of the time on the ground crying, and he seemed to exactly. live. He managed all right. I don't mean to say that so disparagingly. I'm glad he's alive, and I wouldn't do much better, right, or better at all. I, I'm a total coward. But if he can lie on the ground crying and stabbing and crying and stabbing, then yes. probably Tyrion would be fine. Sam's, like, power of heart uh, was able to <laughs> save him this whole time because he didn't have much else going for him no. this time. He gave away his only, his his you know, prized sword that he said he couldn't wield despite the fact that like i don't know sorry i was gonna i'm gonna have a really like book nerd thing here Go ahead. but like valyrian steel swords are supposed to be very light 
like oh everybody's like amazed at how light the valyrian steel is and it's like come on sam you could you could hold it it's probably lighter than the, the dragon glass you don't know about his upper body strength maybe it's really really bad <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he just really wanted to give the sword to jorah and he's trying to come up with it just that's right he's like oh i just can't lift it but speaking of things not going the way people might expect so the 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 trench is lit it seems to work for a little bit it keeps the dead at bay but then the night king is able to direct them to make like a body bridge and i Mm -hmm. that i really liked and i was shocked that the characters hadn't thought that the dead don't fear pain or fire and will do you know it's a sort of it's really difficult to fight an enemy that is not afraid of pain or dying right they're just drones being controlled here and i this is that's also the first instance we see of the Night King this episode, mm-hmm. and I think, and I'm glad they ended up doing this, but like I think the Night King was far more terrifying in the way that they have depicted him in this episode than he has been in any episode prior. I think a lot of it had to do with setting in some darkness around his glowing eyes Hmm. to make him a lot more menacing looking in that way. And a number of shots where we see him uh, kind of out of focus. So you really only see like those glowing eyes and sort of a a blurry figure. So he's a little bit like less tangible sometimes. Yeah. And then when we do see him, I think he's a little bit more, a little scarier than he has been in other instances where where he's shown up in like hard home or something like that. That's really interesting to hear you say that, Dan, because I was reading something that was arguing a little bit the opposite about not the way that he looked, but mm-hmm. that he seemed so much more human in this episode in his motivations and his little smirks and his, mm-hmm. and his overconfidence that... They thought it seemed less scary because he's represented this sort of archetypal or cosmic evil, right? And that he seemed more human. But I wonder if there's something actually, if you can combine those things, that seeming more human is actually scarier. I, I definitely get that, the human angle to it. And I, I think the um, the instance where he's essentially flying in and with Viserion and they blast the wall at Winterfell is definitely like this moment where it seems like his ego got the better of him yeah. and he thought that things were going better than they would be because that's when John and Rhaegal swoop in and attack him and it really turns the course of the whole of the Night King's whole kind of like thing that he's got going on mm-hmm. so in a sense that felt like the plan was finally working yeah they finally lured the Night King in to make this strike and he didn't get a lot out of it. The zombies were already overrunning the place, and he opened himself up big time. So it was this kind of very human mistake. But, you know, of course, there's an instance later where we have the smirk, and he's got kind of the way that he walks also. It's, it's, very, it's very human. He kind of, you know, his, he kind of swings his arms forward and his battle garb is draping and we sort of see that moving with his legs and everything. It's not like this, like, impossible being right. that he may have felt like in the past. But I don't know. It, it is maybe that kind of, like, cosmic horror-made demi-human, demi-god kind of kind of thing and he's he's still kind of tough to figure out but i yeah i just think the general look of him 
was maybe it's not yeah i do think it was a little scary yeah no i um, i see, i totally see what you mean i'm just mm-hmm. i'm i'm wondering if they can both be true at the same time um I, i'll just say yes <laughs> <laughs> good okay moving on <laughs> i think the next big thing is aria's zombie adventure Mm, yes the aria goes to the jurassic park kitchen (laughs) yeah except this time it's a library yeah and when i watched this thing the second time and iris was watching with me that scene came on and i was just like this is just silly (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure what they're doing in there it's it is definitely a scene that is meant to shift the pace and it's helpful in that regard Mm -hmm. because i do think something was needed to to break up the pace of a lot of the the shots that they were doing in in the battle scenes and the just the like the clashing and basically all the characters we're not talking about right now because all they're doing is just fighting for their lives the whole time and Mm -hmm. there's there's not really anything else to it right a lot of that stuff is actually shot in uh, or if not shot edited to be in faster than real motion. So it's like fast forwarding a lot of the action and everything is meant to be sort of frenetic and chaotic to the degree that it can often be hard to tell what exactly is going on other than violence and things that are bad all around you. (laughs) It does feel bad. Um, (laughs) And uh, so then we have this other scene, which is far more sort of uh, legible yeah. It's slowed down one character versus kind of, you know, a, a cadre of, of zombies here milling about in the library. Yeah. So I think in that way, it's effective. We get to sort of breathe a little bit. They really, this, even like the effect of the sound, right? They make it basically silent except for the sounds that the zombies are making. I think they do not, except for the blood dripping from her forehead, Arya makes no sound. And mm-hmm. so it's a it's a reprieve from the constant sort of crashing and roar of battle. But I'm I had this feeling and if I had it, you probably had it even more that it felt a little bit like a video game. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of like a, a The Last of Us kind of thing going on here. Mm-hmm. Or a game I know there are a couple there I have watched my husband play lots of puzzle games where your the whole idea is that you're not spotted, that the the point of the game is to not be seen. And so mm-hmm. it seemed like she was playing that kind of a game. Yeah. And she's able to sort of also kind of, you know, magically get her, get out of the way right when the zombie's going to look and, and look under the table and, and, oh, she's gone. Like, how did she move that fast? And yeah, I do think the sound design and that was nice, how quiet she is. It's essentially then all for naught when she finally gets out because she gets all nice and quiet out of that room only to have just a totally another random hallway yeah. like that is full of zombies just crash through, then uh, ultimately that will lead her to being found by Beric and, and the Hound. Yeah, and they're making the Hound's affection for Arya very clear in this episode that he's really, mm-hmm. he's really panicking and having a moment that, again, there are a lot of echoes of the Battle of Blackwater here, but, he, but Beric is able to sort of get him out of that by having him go and save Arya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked it. I, I think that they hadn't really made great use of the Hound so far this season, but they 
they kind of do here. I mean, because the Hound and, and Arya have this symbiotic relationship, and essentially it seems like probably neither survives this stuff without the other one yeah, uh, helping them in some way, be it actually like defending off a zombie or just like the encouragement and the drive to keep fighting. They definitely kind of need one another in that instance. Yeah. And then also, finally, at long last, Beric Dondarrion is dead. Uh, apparently, Beric Dondarrion is a Christ figure. I mean, I did see the way that he died. <laughs> he's blocking the the hallway, and he's mm-hmm. and he's in a he, his body is in a, a cross. So yeah. And he's taken some stabs to the back, and essentially keeping the the whites at bay for a bit and is able to somehow stumble through the door. I remember watching that scene the first time I was like, how is he, how did he not get left behind? How did he he make it through all this? Because it really seems like a number of instances where he's like, I'll take the hit on this Mm -hmm. one. You guys keep going. Mm -hmm. But like somehow he keeps up with them. (laughs) It's like, he's just volunteered to be human pincushion, but somehow he didn't lose pace. Right. I'm sure it's just so Arya can look in his face as he dies, right? But it also, this scene, what I liked about this too, is that Arya seems concerned about him, that we haven't seen her be worried about someone dying in a long time. Sort of, Mm -hmm. she's playing like she doesn't really care how anyone lives or dies. But even though she doesn't like Beric, right? They don't have a good Mm -hmm. history, that she's the one who doesn't want to leave him behind. And the Hound is the one who's insisting, like, we have to go. Yeah. Yeah, Beric saves her life, right? He she falls through this door with a with a white on top of her, and he throws you know his flaming sword, and he's he has no weapon after that, and he's essentially sacrificed any ability he had to defend himself from there on out to save Arya. So I, she probably felt a little bit of guilt and uh, responsibility for him ultimately having been dying here. I was also wondering if there was kind of a cool parallel here with the books and the way that the books handle Beric essentially giving his life Mm -hmm. for Lady Stoneheart to live and Lady Stoneheart in the books so far has essentially carried out the Stark revenge in the Riverlands and Arya in the show carried out the Stark revenge in the Riverlands and so ultimately here Beric though in a very in, in a much less magical way than it happens in the books essentially gives his life for Arya here as as a sacrifice and i don't know i think there's there's that nice kind of parallel there and it it made it also reminded me about the lady stoneheart plot in the books and how eager i am to see <laughs> what happens with all that um oh me too but I think you're right that sort of improbably those the books and the show have ended up with a really close ending for Beric, that like a very similar ending. Um, and I wouldn't have thought it would could happen at this point. Yeah. And then in that room with Beric and the Hound and Arya is uh, Melisandre, who's been waiting there for Arya to show up. Mm-hmm. She knew right where to be. And essentially gives Arya a bit of a pep talk because they had a little bit of a conversation earlier. or the, No, they just exchanged a look earlier. Right. And here, essentially, she's saying, like, Arya says to Melisandre, basically, you said that I was going to close many eyes forever. That definitely came true. And 
then Melisandre says, yes, brown eyes, green eyes, and blue eyes, seemingly to imply the Night King. I just, at the first, I just thinking like, oh, it, on on initial viewing, I was just thinking like, oh yeah, all of the like whites. Me too. And the zombies, you know, it's like she is having to essentially kill a lot of zombies here. Not thinking like, no, there's one particular set of blue eyes that you need to take care of. But, you know, in the in the previous episode, or maybe it was the first one, Arya mentions about how she's eager to see, like, this face of death. And then Melisandre is able to quote Cereal Pharrell here and say, what do we say to death? Not today, of course. Yeah. And so she says to death, not today. Like, literally this face of death. I didn't think about it before, but it in this moment, it is sort of changing her relationship with death that she's had for a long time where she's sort of been on death's side and at Mm -hmm. at melisandre's prompting reminding her of sirio's words she's like oh yeah i should fight against death so that's actually really nice yeah it kind of brings her back a little bit i think so Um, we'll see how it we'll see if it lasts because she's probably gonna go from this to maybe trying to kill cersei (laughs) but yeah i don't know I am also curious where, where Arya goes from here. Anyway, we, yeah, maybe we get to the end of the episode and we can talk more <laughs> but, about what's going to happen next because that's certainly yeah, something. But it, the way that you said it just now sort of made clear to me that Melisandre is, is sort of realigning Arya's relationship to death because she's been kind of working with it for several seasons now. Mm-hmm. I mean, in general, a lot of wraparound to what seemed like a throwaway instance where Arya saw Melisandre back in season two or whatever, and which was a deviation from the books. Mm-hmm. And then also has this kind of relationship with Beric and the Brotherhood Without Banners. And I was not expecting like all of that stuff to really come back around in, ne- in nearly the significant way that it did in this episode. Yeah. And I think the WB and other people um, in charge of creating the show have been very clear that they wanted this to take us by surprise, that they wanted Arya being the one to kill the Night King sort of coming out of nowhere instead of it being either Danny or John, who would be sort of more traditional picks for that. I, th- I think that they actually, there was some of the, the legwork done to make it work. But what do you think about wanting to surprise us so much instead of going with someone who might more traditionally have been the person to kill the Night King? I, I think this is another instance where it, it makes for a really compelling episode of television, but it also, and and again, it sort of depends on how they handle some of the stuff going forward, but I think it, it upsets some of the arcs that we had in mind how certain prophecies were going to work mm-hmm. and that Melisandre would have been doing all of this work to support John or Danny one of whom was, she was convinced was essentially the prince that was promised again. Right. And this whole, like, everything that's involved in that prophecy of being born amidst smoke and salt. And as far as we know, Arya doesn't fit the criteria of any of that stuff. She's just a good assassin. And it certainly is surprising in that instance. But, like, what does this do for... So, essentially, has Melisandre been wrong again about John And that this, you know, was another, that the whole Battle of the Bastards thing was another bit of misinformation on her part. Hmm. And I, yeah, I just think it, it throws a number of overarching arcs for a loop 
in a way that I feel like they're going to have to do some work to, to justify. But I did, in the context of a single episode of television and the buildup that they actually had with Arya starting in the previous season, it, it does make sense in that way. And it was a resoundingly, I think, pleasant surprise. I agree. And some of the prophecy that we're talking about and that matters to this, the sort of our understanding of the greater arc of the story has not been included in the, in the mm-hmm. show. So they probably do not care about that at all. <laughs> yeah. But I, it's interesting that maybe Melisandre is wrong again. Again, and we'll never find out like how did you finally get a prophecy that you could trust or like a vision that you finally got right because you're wrong right. all the time mm-hmm. it's like well she saw maybe she was able to go somewhere back in essos and she got some like better fire or something like that like she's been she's been using westeros fire for a long time <laughs> here and it's really clouding her visions but she went and got some essos fire and it's like oh this is all good yeah better connection some primo Lyseni fire. <laughs> That's a joke that like three people will laugh at. <laughs> so while this is going on, things are going worse outside. Right. You've got the gate has been broken down. Liana Mormont has been crushed, but has stabbed an ice giant in the process. I thought that was a, was a very good scene. Mm-hmm. Very fitting. In a good way, if they're, you know, I think we we lose some characters this episode. Not that many, though, to be honest. But the ones we lose, I think they do a good job with them. And probably if we were to lose more, it would either start to feel redundant or like everybody wasn't getting their due. But I think the the number that they chose here and who they chose and how they, they did with those uh, worked really well. I agree. So I will miss her, but that was a hell of a way to go out. Yeah, same. Viserion starts taking down the very walls of Winterfell with his blue plasma. I don't know. <laughs> we don't really know. Ice? No, it's not ice, though. It's, yeah, like... His laser beams? Laser fire. <laughs> I have another question. I feel like I've got a lot of questions tonight. Sure. There's a moment. John doesn't do great this episode he and danny at some point are or maybe not both of them are it's all gotten gotten muddled now on the Mm -hmm. he starts heading for the night king when the night king Mm -hmm. is alone forgetting that the night king can raise the dead and he's surrounded by dead right um Uh so that's stupid thing number one he's just like i'm gonna run at this guy and then all of a sudden there's a whole new army around me but then he becomes really obsessed with the idea of getting to bran Mm-hmm. And he says, like, I really need to get to Bran. And so somehow he manages to fight his way through the dead. He gets back into Winterfell and he passes by basically all the characters that we and he care about. I'm thinking of Sam in particular. And he doesn't stop to help any of them because he's so focused on Bran. Right. Is this a good choice? It's definitely a character departure. Yeah. From everything that John has done in the past. I don't know. I, I just took it. I took it to be like there's no time to help and essentially like if we lose Bran we're going to lose the whole thing. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't know what I don't know what happens after in theory a, a night king kills Bran. What happens then? Does essentially they're just like 
well, let's just finish the rest of people off. Or is it like, well, let's get out of here. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the plan is for them, for the White Walkers, after they would kill Bran here. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I it didn't feel unjustified to me, okay. but it was definitely like strange <laughs> um, that John would be able to be, I don't know if he was necessarily being callous, but more like, I have to get to this place. There's no time for me to do anything else. I don't know. What did you think about it? Yeah, I'm, I must be giving it too much weight, but I did think it seemed weird and is a is a an unusually sort of poor choice on John's part. Usually he helps the people who he loves and who are in front of him and he seems so focused on Bran. And maybe it's just that the viewer realizes that Bran is, is at least for the meantime, okay. But I don't know. It just struck me as weird. On the other hand, though, everybody that he passed lived. Good point. No one, no <laughs> one died because he didn't help them. So, so that he doesn't. So I think he doesn't actually. He's got a clear conscience yeah. in that regard. Then, where it could have been. I mean, imagine if all that goes down to be like, yeah, but Sam died, and he'd be like, you know, then then we have a something else that's a little bit, yeah, <laughs> more of a conflict. Sure, there. sure, sure. Okay, you're right. I can um, I can put that to bed. You're right. No one. It didn't matter at all. <laughs> and the one other thing I would, the one other thing I would say in John's defense is I also forgot that the Night King was going to potentially resurrect everybody. And so like when he when the Night King turns around and starts lifting his hands up, that's the first time I was like, "Oh yeah, he can do that." I I had forgotten. You are a sweet summer child. <laughs> I think I was just too wrapped up in everything. <laughs> so I I uh yeah, I was definitely like in uh, in John's mental state this episode, which was just like fluttering from one thing to the next, being thrown around and being like, I don't know what's happening, but <laughs> I was trying to hang on here and do do the best I can. Yeah, if he only could have gotten a little bit closer to the Night King when the, the flames didn't work, when I don't know if you're familiar with this video game reference, but when the Night King essentially, Danny tries to burn him, with the dragon fire and it doesn't work mm-hmm. and then he essentially like looks up and has this kind of smirk there's the villain from final fantasy 7 is named sephiroth and he basically has almost a shot for shot exact same thing that happens where sephiroth burns this town and then there's just a close-up shot when another hero character comes and finds him that is like slow like look up as he's surrounded by flames hmm. i do not know that one Anyway, I tried to see if anybody else made that connection, and I found a YouTube video that had 20 views. <laughs> so 21 people were like, yes. I see what's happening here. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, I guess I skipped over the part where we discover that White Walkers cannot be killed with Dragonfire. I can't. Why is Drogon landed? Why is he on the ground? I don't remember. Uh, well, that was... He essentially saved John. John was, wait. I'm sorry. Was, I really, I have on? lost my, I've lost my bearings with this battle at this point. Oh, that was, so that was actually after the Night King resurrected all the dead and John was down there and surrounded. I see. That's And so right. Drogon burned a lot of the zombies and then landed there so that he, so that Danny and John could have an exchange. And that's where John says he's, he just says, Bran! <laughs> <laughs> And then goes and and runs, and uh, Danny then on Drogon is thrown off because all the zombies start swarming on top of him, and 
to make another great nerdy anime reference here, to me, <laughs> the the zombies on top of Drogon, it seemed like, again, there was this sort of like, this question of like, why doesn't Drogon just burn him or fling his tail around? And it seemed like basically in service so they could have this shot of Drogon sort of shaking mm-hmm. around as he's flying away and we see all these zombies you know, just falling to the ground. That was very much to me like the scene early on in Princess Mononoke where there's the kind of, I think it's technically a boar, like a giant, giant boar hmm. that is being swarmed over by these kind of like oily demon leech kind of looking things. I think I do remember that one. So I know that. It, it stood out to me and it was it was creepy in that same way. And also I was very afraid for Drogon in that instance. I was like, oh, come on. This can't be how he goes down. Yeah. And it wasn't. No, so. no, it wasn't. But in, in the books we hear about dragons have been killed by just huge mobs of people. And so it's possible mm-hmm. if you just get enough people stabbing into a dragon that it will kill them. I think that there's an element ultimately of the whites here that I, I'm going to try to call them whites as much as possible instead of just zombies because I think that's actually a key difference between the whites and zombies is... I think zombies are scarier. Mm-hmm. Whites are like dead warriors. They are f- skeleton fighters. And uh, I mean, actually, I'll take, I'll, I think a skeleton fighter is about as cool as it gets. <laughs> um, <laughs> when it's just the dead people, it, it's just like these dead people with, with swords and knives and stuff like that. And that's how they fight. They stab you just like any other human would. They don't have sort of like this more disturbing like desire to like eat people alive. And there's not the element and... of infection, which is the other scary thing about zombies is that even if you are not killed, if you're bitten, then you become one of them. But that's not an element here. Mm-hmm. So it's like the whites here, it's it's just a lot less messy. It's just mm. this kind of like clean, mm-hmm. dry, like literally, I got all the puns today, the bone dry, undead fighters. And so... At a certain point, I think I really I realized in this episode that when it was just kind of like zombies here and there or whites here and there fighting heroes, it's just not it's not as threatening as if like it was actually like a zombie sword. Yeah. S- swarm, swarm. Zombie swarm. Yeah. Well, and that's like I think they even mention it in the a game revealed that it's one of the cardinal rules of horror that as soon as you reveal or as soon as you show your monster it's not as scary so early on when it's just something out there in the dark that's really scary but when you see mm-hmm. like a skeleton with a knife that's not as scary <laughs> that's just that's just rad <laughs> yeah yeah but there's the it's the the un the not knowing and and the possibility of something out there that is so much scarier than anything that you actually can see mm-hmm so I think we've pretty much just got the ending here left. The White Walkers, who we have not seen do anything, stroll on in mm-hmm. without the Night King with them. Somewhere along the way, the Night King meets up with them somewhere in Winterfell. I'd like to see that conversation where the rest of the White Walkers meet up with the Night King. He's like, hey, what have you, you guys been doing this whole time? <laughs> <laughs> you realize my dragon got its face ripped off and you're just strolling in here. Yeah, he'll give them a talking to later if he survived. Mm-hmm. There's a couple instances, I think, in this episode of really great music integration. I like, during the battle scenes, the ticking sound. Yes, It's like this kind of clock good. ticking. 
that keeps pace and really keeps everything uh, tense. But more than that, even, the final kind of piano ballad that plays as the Night King is walking in slow motion and we're cutting to everybody else unable to help. Jorah is out defending Danny. John is holed up against uh, Viserion. Everybody else is just like fighting for their lives wherever they are. Theon has gotten taken out by the Night King at this point. Yeah. Which, uh, just to mention quickly, that's a really just kind of sweet end to his arc. I, I liked it a lot. And especially, we, we always uh, think of bittersweet when it comes to Arya, but Bran forgives him and tells him he's a good man. But also, as far as Theon knows, when he dies, he has failed. And so that's mm-hmm. something where he, he does the good thing, but he doesn't realize that it makes a difference. Right. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it does make a difference. Maybe it gives Arya an extra couple seconds there to get in get in place. Also, just like speaking to how much more sympathetic Bran is this season, where it's like being he's being nice to people, and it's just such a turn for his character that I very much welcome. Yeah, I like it too. Although I don't, I'm I don't mean to spoil it for you, but it's possible that it's still manipulative that it's he's telling Theon the thing that he needs to hear in order to make the sacrifice true true and it's it's also kind of unclear exactly what what Bran knew ahead of time what he was really doing this episode when he's warging into the crows Mm -hmm. because he goes into the crows and essentially finds the night king and then it's unclear what he's wor- working with, you know, what he's doing with the crows the rest of the time. I, I kind of thought it was more just like he knew how this was going to happen and he's just making sure it's happening like it's supposed to happen. I, th- like, I think that too. I don't know that he, I think all the action that he took happened before this battle. Mm-hmm. And sort of set, making sure everything was kind of set up in motion. Right. And yeah, so the, the Night King walks in slowly and there's a great build and it's seeming like, like all hope is lost. Reaches back for his sword. And then we see over his shoulder Arya jumping in. And uh, the Night King grabs Arya by one hand on her neck and another hand on the hand holding the dagger, which leaves that other right hand open. Mm-hmm. Apparently, uh, I didn't notice this, but in the after the show stuff, they talk about how Arya is supposed to be left-handed. So she's like, that's essentially where she's coming in with a dagger and that uh, Maisie Williams is not left-handed, but essentially trained Mm -hmm. (laughs) with her left hand. So that's how she does everything. Anyway, Arya drops the dagger to her free right hand, stabs the Night King with the Valyrian steel dagger in a similar enough area to where (laughs) the dragonglass dagger went in to make the White Walkers. Then, you know, uh, all the White Walkers explode into ice and all the the whites uh, stop moving. Yeah, Viserion is about to Ink. shoot his laser laser plasma, but then his body just sort of collapses. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole thing with Viserion was, was sad, so it was kind of like, I don't know, nice that he finally got put down. Yeah. Because it's just like this like literal shell of like this wonderful like beast that, that existed before, and it's just been sort of corrupted. Right. It's like and... a horrible living taxidermy. Mm-hmm. Then in quick succession, Jorah dies. Danny, sad. Melisandre, her mission complete, goes out into the snow, takes off all her stuff, and dies. Yeah. I liked the ending for Melisandre. Me too. I mean, in general, you know, we didn't have the instance that I really thought was going to happen where Melisandre was going to have a little bit more of like a 
big impact. I mean, she she did, but in like a very subtle way and mm-hmm. just influencing Arya, not like Davos, light me up. I'm going to like blow this Night King sky high, right. which is kind of how I thought it was going to happen. Instead, we essentially get, do you ever see the video game Journey? Yes. The seemingly ending of Journey where these characters in red robes are staggering up uh, a snowy peak and then they just collapse and yeah. fall dead. Yeah. And it's a really lovely scene in the game. And I, I thought it was also similarly an aesthetic used well here to just say that Melisandre has done what she was living to do. The only reason she was around was to face against the evil that she identified as the Night King, assuming she was correct because she has been wrong a lot. <laughs> yeah. But that she essentially is it's like, I'm done. That's it. And then that was it. It was. Now we have three episodes left. And what is going to happen? <laughs> I don't I don't know, Dan. Like what is happening? We have Miguel Sapochnik directing episode five, David Nutter back for back for the next one in, in four, and the WB helming the finale. I would imagine a Miguel Sapochnik is doing a, a battle at King's Landing, but what is that? I I don't know. I'm so puzzled. Yeah, I really can't make that many predictions now, other than I still think, like, Jamie and and or Arya are both going to try for Cersei. We know that Bronn is at least set up to kill both Tyrion and Jamie. There are some things that have been mm-hmm. set into motion, but I'm mostly totally... I have, I have like, basically no idea. Yeah, I, I think it would be... There's just so many of the hero characters left that like it almost would feel like for them to die to Cersei other than like a Jamie self-sacrifice or something like that. Like it's just small potatoes. Like if, if one of those dragons dies because they get shot with like a big spear, it's like, that's lame. Yeah. I don't know. But they, they may both die because I still think it's possible that, with the White Walkers out of the world that we're going to have this cyclical thing where we started the show and magic was basically absent from the world. There's a short resurgence and then it's gone again. Yeah. If they're interested in sort of keeping up those kind of bigger arcs, but I, I guess in the battle with like them bringing in Arya like this, maybe they're not interested in that. Maybe they're just looking to sort of keep us on guard and give us something unexpected. Yeah. And that worries me a little bit because lots of mm-hmm. things could surprise me and not in a good way. <laughs> Yeah. But we'll see. I have almost no predictions mm. for what's going to happen next. I, I bet Sansa stays in the north. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Again, maybe they'll all have to move to some degree. I don't know if anybody can actually stay in Winterfell at this point. They might have to go somewhere. Well, the Glovers, I guess, were punks who like stayed in their um, keep. I don't know if they survived. Yeah. They can go hang out with the Glovers. I Yeah, I don't I would be surprised because I, I think if that guy shows his face again, he's dead. Like there's, <laughs> there's no way he can show up again and be like, well, I'm sorry. I, I once again, I did not trust you. I break the faith um, every two months. <laughs> I refuse to answer the call. My phone is really broken, you guys. It's just not happening. New banner who dis. <laughs> sorry. Um... <laughs> I, I do hope we see Mira again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be neat. We're certainly at some point going to have Clegane Bowl. Mm-hmm. 
Danny but... and John are really going to have to deal with the repercussions of being related. Yeah, because apparently this fight didn't like really throw anything off. It's just <laughs> like I feel like before the fight, we're like, well, nobody, no time for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows how this is all even going to shake out. It might not even be a thing to discuss at a certain point. But turns out it is. Yeah. Because everybody's still alive. Yeah. It'll be a real mystery on Sunday. I'm not sure what yeah. we'll see. I, the one thing I would say is I don't think they're going to have Arya kill Cersei because... That would be it just a lot. Seems too redundant. Yeah. It's like, oh, she assassinated another person. Uh, yeah, I don't. Which also leads me to believe, like, or leads me to wonder, like, what does Arya do for the rest of the time? Like, maybe she and the Hound will go have their grave digger. Like, maybe they go together. Just two hmm. killers taking a vow of silence and digging graves. Maybe- well, yeah, maybe. Well, maybe she'll help him. Maybe, maybe Sandor Clegane cannot beat his brother, um, but maybe he can with Arya's help or something. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Any more predictions? No, I. It's it's too up in the air. I, I don't think I have anything else. I, I'll be. I'm just kind of flabbergasted. I really want to see what the next episode to, tries to do. Yeah. Well, tell me about your bingo card. Well, and I don't have it next to me, but it doesn't really matter because we didn't mark anything else off. <laughs> Did you get any squares on yours? I got one, which is the Night King does not speak. Ooh. John got three, although I think one of them will be up to for debate. So the one was the Hound and Arya fight together. No, that, yes. Uh, yes, I would say that is... That is uh, conclusive. That hallway where they were there with Beric, they were definitely yeah. fighting together. His second one was Beric dies. And then okay, this yeah. third one is the Red Witch dies by suicide. Yeah. I think it is a kind I, yeah. of suicide. Okay. Okay. I agree. Definitely not the way I thought it was going. Boy, I was really too specific in the ones that I wrote. <laughs> I should have been more broad because it's definitely like how you could... Uh, actually get some points here and then i was actually thinking about (laughs) that i might have to take away one of your points take away yeah well in last week we talked about learning more about the white walkers but i think that we can say we learned nothing about the white walkers okay we i didn't i didn't i did not end up marking okay okay well then you then that was prudent of you because i my one regret maybe about this episode is that i think we have ended knowing basically nothing about them only the little yeah because it was only the assumptions that sam made about why they were going after bran mm-hmm. is the only thing we quote unquote learned but it was never really confirmed yep it was more like speculation like we think that's what they want and why they would want it but don't know don't know and we'll never know now right <laughs> unless this is not actually the end of the white walkers but i think it is it would be really strange. I, I mean, now I can sort of imagine for the last episode, like the very last and the last scene, that you've got like a, a White Walker head and it opens one eye and it's blue. Uh-huh. Um, and then it goes to black. I could see that. But Somehow white whites are still around. But I don't somehow. Where's, like where's Craster's baby? Maybe it's still <laughs> way up north. Yeah, it's still training up there in the, yeah. in the far, far north. But the, the new Night King. Yeah. But I wouldn't... The Night Prince... <laughs> I don't want that, though. I think that's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it is dumb. (laughs) So I think now John is in the lead with four. Mm. I've still got one. And you guys... Are they in a row, though? Not in a row. But yeah, our bingo cards are not 
doing so great. <laughs> well, we've got half the season left. Yeah. Stuff could still happen, but I think actually my problem is a lot on a lot of the things on my board are off the table basically at this point. Yeah. Characters who have died or other things that have already happened that have made those other things impossible. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Who knows? There someone could still really steal this whole thing. Yeah. Harry Strickland could die next episode, and that would be somebody's. Yeah, I remember saying that the Golden Company will be useless. I sort of don't believe that now because there has to be some sort of fight with them. I thought that it was going to be the pre-fight. Like, what's the the boss before the big boss? The the mid-boss? Yeah, I don't know. I thought Or the the mini-boss? I thought that they were going to be like the Uh mini-boss. But then my whole world got turned upside down. Yeah, because it could be an even fight now. There's probably not that many... People left up north to fight. So and they are the, not like, going to want to fight for numbers. Danny. I know they seem pretty excited in the trailer. Who knows who she's talking to, though? Yeah, maybe it's intercut. That's <laughs> she's in a totally different room. <laughs> <laughs> they cut to somebody else cheering. They're like, "Yeah, we beat the White Walkers," but Danny's actually playing to like a crickets. You yeah, know. she's like, "And who wants to support my claim against Cersei and go south?" And everyone's like, "Boo." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah i'm i'm truly puzzled i don't know what we'll see anyway it's been i'm I'm just now my nerves are starting to calm down so i'm glad we talked this through yeah finally calming down i think we are definitely running along this episode but i think it was necessary there was just so much to cover here and the episode itself was gigantic Mm -hmm. in in length Mm -hmm. so i think we we could only be proportional here but that does bring us, I think, to a close. So we'll just kind of wrap up here. If you want to find all of our podcasts, themummersfarce.libson.com. I think that I had the email address wrong last week. Oh. It's themummersfarcepodcast at gmail.com. I believe I forgot the word podcast on there. Mummersfarcepod is our Twitter handle. And you can find all the podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Give me, give me one prediction for next week. Give me one thing you think is going to happen. It can be something minor. There's some sort of comment about how many of our main characters are still alive. There's like a metatextual, like, well, you made it through, or like, I don't know. There's because they're, they're gonna, it's gonna be hard to balance that there were so many deaths, but not of very important people. Yes, I could see that. I think that Euron will attempt, but not be able to pull off a 900 on a sick vert ramp. And with that, <laughs> with that, we will see if all that happens next week on Game of Thrones and come see us next week on the Mummers Forest podcast. See you next week, Kate. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Bye.